You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear the totally true stories of a hippopotamus chase that took place on the Detroit River back in 1863. And then you'll hear the story of a skydiver who jumped without a parachute. And get this, as he was falling, another skydiver handed him his missing chute. Or how about a man who attempted to rob a New York City bank, but he had absolutely no clue that he was doing so. That was until he was arrested. Well, all those stories, the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and so much more. They're all coming up next on today's edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Now, before we dive into the stories that I've chosen for today's retrocast, I just wanted to remind you that I'm running a contest right now to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Troy Sentinel newspaper first publishing the classic Christmas poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which of course is more commonly referred to as Twas the Night Before Christmas. And in honor of that first publication, I'll be giving away one signed copy of Pamela McCall's fantastic book, Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Classic Christmas Poem. If you recall, Pamela was a guest on the podcast last Christmas, so if you've never heard that episode, I strongly encourage you to go back and give it a listen. It was episode number 185. I can honestly say it's an impressive book. It's filled not only with the history of Christmas and the poem itself, but there's hundreds of beautiful images all throughout the book. Even if you never read a single word of the volume, I have to tell you, just flipping through the pages is a pure delight. Well, Pamela's been kind enough to provide a signed copy of her book for one of my lucky listeners to receive, and that could be you. Just head on over to my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and you'll see that the top post on the page has a link to the contest and the entry form. You have until midnight of December 8th of 2023 to get your entry in. So just hop on over to my website, again, it's uselessinformation.org, and be sure to submit your entry. And while you're there, be sure to check out the book, Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Classic Christmas Poem by Pamela McCall. It makes a wonderful Christmas gift, and there's a link to the Amazon listing for the book on that webpage. So check it out. Today, I'm excited to share with you what I believe is a fantastic retrocast. And if you're new here and you're unfamiliar with the podcast, 
I'll just preface this by mentioning these are the shorter stories that I found while doing my research for the usual full-length stories that I do. And I will be back in the next episode with one of those full-length stories. So without further delay, let's delve right into today's assortment of true stories. This first one I came across while I was doing my research for the last podcast that was about Slippery the Sea Lion. It was just a one-sentence mention, and I decided to look into it further. And here's how that story goes. During the afternoon of June 22, 1863, a very unusual incident took place on the Detroit River. At approximately 6 miles or 9.7 kilometers downstream from Detroit, a remarkable event unfolded, an authentic hippopotamus chase. This spectacle occurred as a circus was making its journey from Buffalo to Detroit. But due to the substantial weight of both the hippopotamus and the elephants, they needed to be moved by steamship. The hippopotamus, a prize attraction in G.F. Bailey's quadruple circus, which was owned by G.C. Quick Esquire, it found itself at the center of an almost successful bid for freedom. This colossal creature, accompanied by his Egyptian captor and caretaker Ali, was transported on the steamer J.D. Caldwell. But the hippo's cage was too big to fit aboard, so it was transported separately by land. As a result, the hippo was shipped uncaged. Do you see a potential problem here? Well, during the voyage, observers noted the animal's persistent gaze toward the water, seemingly yearning for a plunge into the lake's depths. However, no one anticipated the creature succumbing to its amphibious instincts, so no extra precautions were taken. As the steamer approached the city, a crash followed by a splash was heard coming from the bow's side, which was facing toward the American shore. Pandemonium ensued as everyone rushed to the source of the sound. There they found that the colossal beast, unable to resist temptation, had broken free and dived into the river for an aquatic escapade. Moments later, the immense head of the beast emerged above the water's surface. A collective cheer erupted and Ali, on the verge of diving into the water in pursuit of his beloved pet, was restrained as a small boat was lowered to the river below. He then rode towards a hippopotamus, which seemed delighted by its newfound freedom. As Ali called the creature by familiar names, it responded by stopping, surveying its surroundings, and seemingly waiting for the boat to approach. However, just as it neared, the hippopotamus plunged again, creating a whirlpool where it vanished. After a considerable absence, it resurfaced about 100 yards or 274 meters away, this time closer to the shore. Repeated attempts to approach the creature failed, and Ali, momentarily stumped and overwhelmed by grief, suddenly seized the oars and rowed towards the steamer. Quote, Try the dog! he shouted upon reaching the vessel. A black mastiff accustomed to sleeping in the hippopotamus's cage had been howling since its companion's escape. It was released and swiftly swam after Ali. In about a minute, the hippopotamus surfaced once more at the dog's approach. The dog barked wildly, and the two animals then swam toward the American shore. And not long after that, Ali also arrived at the shoreline. After uttering a few words to the hippopotamus, he used a leather whip and gave it a few whacks on the behind. 
Ali then guided the creature to a secure location where it was safely tethered. Then, after confirming the hippo was in good condition, preparations were made to transport it to its city destination. A syndicated Associated Press article from January 26, 1944, it revealed that a struggling actress had pulled the wool over the eyes of those making Hollywood motion pictures. She was 20-year-old Tannis Chandler, who was born Tannis and Goldwaith in France. Her mother was French and her dad was a U.S. citizen. Well, her family moved to New York in 1936, after which her father became ill. So Tannis turned to modeling and then ultimately headed for Hollywood to seek her fortune and fame. She was signed by a studio, but was dropped just one year later. So to support herself, Tannis obtained employment as a teletypist at a stock brokerage, but her desire to appear in films never waned. But actresses come a dime a dozen in Hollywood, and Tannis was rejected for parts over and over again. If only she could figure out a way to secure a part in a movie. Then it hit her. By 1943, World War II was well underway, and there was a shortage of male actors in Hollywood. So Tannis figured that if she couldn't get a part as a woman, maybe she could sneak into the movies as a man. And that was exactly what happened. She secured a small role under the pseudonym of Robert Archer in the 1943 Warner Brothers film, The Desert Song. The main reason she's able to get away with it is that she, and many of the other players in the movie, were clad in long, flowing robes and burnouses, which of course hid her feminine form. The casting office thought so well of her, I guess I should say him, that it sent her out for a role in My Reputation, which starred Barbara Stanwyck. In the film, the phony Robert Archer was to play a young man who mowed the lawn. But what man mows a lawn under the hot California sun with a jacket and a shirt on? So director Curtis Bernhardt asked Archer to take them off. But that was clearly something Tannis couldn't do, and she was forced to reveal her true identity. Quote, Okay, okay, I'm a girl, Miss Chandler said, abandoning the lawnmower and her quest for masculine film honors. She later commented, quote, The studio's always yelling about the lack of men. I thought I'd have better luck in male roles. Oh well. While Tennis Chandler never became an A-list movie star, she was able to secure small, mostly uncredited parts over the next few years. And to support herself between roles, she dubbed an estimated 30 American films destined for French audiences. In addition, with her mother Leona, they established a successful daycare facility for young children. Her final film role was an uncredited one in 1952's At Swords Point, starring Maureen O'Hara and Cornell Wilde. As for her personal life, on October 9, 1949, she married music publisher Paul Mills in Beverly Hills. Together, the couple had two children, and she passed away on May 7th of 2006 in Sedona, Arizona, at 81 years of age. Skydiver Rod Pack claimed that on Friday, January 1st of 1965, he intentionally jumped out of an airplane at 14,600 feet or 4,450 meters in Arvin, California, without a parachute. 
Remarkably, he safely descended to the ground using a parachute handed to him by a fellow skydiver who leaped from the same plane and caught up with him 4,000 feet or 1,219 meters below. In what was an aerial first, Pack, a 26-year-old stuntman, said, quote, They said it couldn't be done, but we proved differently. The pilot verified Pack's narrative, and this confirmation was echoed by two skydiving aerial photographers who snapped photos of Pack as he made his descent. Pack and his skydiving companion, 25-year-old Bob Allen, they engage in several practice jumps, exchanging a lightweight reserve chute between them. Subsequently, Pack recounted that he leaped out donning only a parachute harness, but no chute. Pack told the press, quote, I flared out, lying on my stomach with my feet and arms out, grabbing as much air as possible to slow me down, unquote. Allen immediately followed him, equipped with both a standard back chute and a reserve chest chute. Pack, who weighed 167 pounds or 75.7 kilograms, donned a deep-sea diver's belt that was loaded with 30 pounds or 13.6 kilograms of weights. The idea of this was to match the approximate weight of the parachute-laden Allen. Without those weights, Allen would have outpaced Pack in the sky, quote, and I'd have floated around up there like a feather, unquote. By changing their hand and arm motions, the two were able to align themselves side by side by the time they were 4,000 feet below the plane. At that point, Allen passed the reserve chute to Pack. Quote, he wouldn't let go of it until I gave him the nod, Pack said. Once he got the parachute package beneath his body, Pack was able to utilize wind pressure to keep it in place as he attached the parachute's hooks to the two D-rings of his harness. During this maneuver, he had fallen an additional 4,000 feet. And then he pulled the ripcord. Quote, the sensation is terrible, I tell you. With the parachute hooked to your stomach, you come to a screeching halt from 125 miles an hour. That's about 200 kilometers per hour. Your feet go one way and your head another till they're about to hit each other. But it was a good feeling at the time. Unquote. Pack reached the ground unharmed. Shortly after that, Alan and the two photographers did the same. Quote, we were all just whooping and hollering at each other that the impossible had been done. So was Pack scared? Quote, oh yeah, I'll have to admit it. But the main thing I was interested in was getting nice and stable so Bob could come down and catch up with me. Unquote. He added, I feel great now that it's over. It's a headache that's been bothering me for a long time. My wife Nancy didn't like it at all. She said it makes the other stunts I do in the movies, high falls off buildings, getting through and through windows, seem like nothing. But when he was asked if he'd ever attempt such a thing again, Pack said, quote, No, thank you. I proved my point, and that's all I want to do. Unquote. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So about 15 minutes from my house is a small town named Steventown. 
And I'd love to tell you that it was named after me, Stephen Silverman, but it was really named after Stephen Van Rensselaer III, a member of the family who owned all the land in this area. And when I say all, I mean all. I'm talking about over one million acres. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that Steventown is located in Rensselaer County, as is my home. I also like to joke if you find yourself driving through Steventown, you're probably lost. And that's not really true. I mean, I drive through it fairly often and I'm definitely not lost. But should you find yourself driving through the town, you are certain to notice big signs pointing out that it's the only Steventown on earth. And while Steventown is clearly not a popular name for a place, there are some names that are fairly common. For example, Kingston, Milford, Jackson, Burlington. These are names of multiple places here in the United States. And if you're curious, there are 20 places named Kingston, 21 named Milford, 23 named Jackson, and 22 named Burlington. But none of those are the most common name. So my question for you today is to name the most used place name here in the United States. Well, I'll let you think about that one for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. our cue to tell the folks all about the big surprise. Of course, you go right ahead, Al. Well, Tiny, you've gone and built it up so I really don't know how to start. Well, just start at the beginning. That's always a good place. All right, Tiny. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a lucky pocket piece. Well, I've been carrying it ever since. The case is just about the size of a silver dollar. And inside, well, that's the important part. Inside is an honest-to-goodness four-leaf clover. Remember, Al, how we used to look for them as kids, huh? Oh, you bet, <laughs> Tiny. And they're plenty hard to find, too. Well, folks, one day I was saying to the sponsor, you know, the people I work for, wouldn't it be nice if we were offer all the Life Boy fans a four-leaf clover like this in a nice little case? And, folks, here's the answer. They thought it was a pretty good idea, and they worked it out. Now, Tiny, you tell them about it, won't you? All right, Al. Friends, the makers of Life Boy have found a man in New York who has a big lot of real four-leaf clovers, and they've arranged to have these made up in gold color finished cases with unbreakable crystal faces. And as long as the supply lasts, they're going to send them out to you friends of the Life Boy program. First come, first served, as long as they last. And that goes for men, women, and children. And folks, wait till you see these real 40 clovers. You'll carry them a long, long time if I'm any judge at all. You see, there's a little loop on the case so you ladies can wear yours as a locket on a velvet ribbon. You men can wear yours on your watch chain or carry it as a pocket piece. And you know, I bet there isn't a boy or girl I know who won't get a big kick out of this genuine four-leaf clover pocket piece. Each four-leaf clover is specially treated so that it will stay bright and fresh as the day it was picked. Now, how about it, folks? Isn't that a great idea? Now then, here's all you have to do to get yours. Just write to Life Boy, Box 7, New York City. Send your name and address together with 15 cents and three Life Boy box funds. And the makers of Life Boy will mail yours right to your home. That's all there is to it. But better hurry, because when the four-leaf clovers are gone, we can't get any more. Remember, send us 15 cents and three Life Boy box funds. The address, Life Boy, Box 7, New York City. Now, if you live in Canada, listen carefully. There you must address Life Boy in care of the station to which you are listening and enclose with your box funds 20 cents, just two dimes to cover costs, duty, postage, and handling. 
That commercial for Lifebuoy Soap is from the October 25th, 1938 broadcast of the Al Jolson program. The show ran on the CBS network from 1936 through early 1939. A total of 99 different episodes were broadcast, although only 13 complete and two partial recordings of them still exist. This particular episode was one of those partial recordings. The show was broadcast on Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. for East Coast listeners and then again at 8.30 p.m. for the West Coast. Now, these were live broadcasts, so the West Coast listeners were not listening to these recordings. These were made basically for overseas use. If you're not aware, Al Jolson was one of the most popular entertainers of the 1920s and 1930s here in the United States. And while he was an actor, singer, and vaudevillian, he is mostly remembered today for just two things. First, he performed quite a bit in blackface, which certainly would not be tolerated today, but of course times were very different back then. And without going into detail, I mean, there are numerous websites that discuss the topic of Jolson and his perceived racism, but Jolson was mostly considered a friend of the African-American community back then. As I said, times were very different. But perhaps the thing that Jolson is most remembered for is that he starred in the first feature-length talking movie, The Jazz Singer, in 1927. Interestingly, that wasn't the first sound film that he was in. Just one year earlier, he appeared in a short titled A Plantation Act. In it, Jolson sings three of his hit songs and talks a bit between the numbers. The film was believed lost until a mislabeled copy was found in the Library of Congress. The only problem was that the sound had been recorded on disc and the only known copy had broken into four pieces. Luckily, with modern technology, technicians were able to digitally restore it. So I encourage you to go to YouTube and take a look at the film. Not only did I know two of the three songs, but I was quite surprised at the high quality of the sound. But be warned, Jolson is in blackface the entire time. And that makes the first moments of viewing it a bit unsettling, but I was able to block that thought out quite quickly. As for Lifebuoy Soap, it was first introduced in the UK by Unilever in 1895. It was one of the most popular soaps from the mid-1920s all the way through the mid-1950s. But once better-smelling perfume soaps became popular, Lifebuoy quickly lost market share. It was discontinued here in the United States in 2006, but it is still available in many other markets around the world. Unilever's website claims that it's still the number one selling germ protection soap in the world. Now, I did go on Amazon to do a quick check, and it is for sale there, but the price is fairly high, so my hunch is that it's an imported product. And now it's time for some footnotes to history, and as I've pointed out before, these are just shorter stories that I come across during my research, and there's really little more that can be told about each one. So I'm just going to read them word for word as they were originally written. And our first story was published on June 18th, 1935, on page two of the Boston Globe. The headline reads, Narrow Escape for Quincy Boy. Lightning hits crib. He left to say prayers. Quincy, June 18th. Because little Paul Rouleau, 6, son of Mr. and Mrs. August Rouleau of 98 South Walnut Street, said his evening prayers in the living room of the family home last evening, instead of his usual place in his bedroom, he is alive today. 
lightning late last night demolished the crib that he had left just a few seconds before and set fire to the bed clothing. Becoming frightened at the thunderstorm, Paul asked permission to say his prayers in the living room where the rest of the family was assembled. Hardly had he entered the room when the lightning stunned the family as it hit the boy's little cot. Rushing upstairs, the parents found the clothing of fire and the bed in pieces. The firemen were summoned by telephone, but the fire was out when they arrived. During the night along the waterfront, the storm did quite a bit of damage to small craft. As the rain and wind blew in from the northeast, more than a dozen yachts were driven ashore. Many of the owners stayed aboard all night rather than risk grounding their boats by attempting to come shoreward. This next story is from the April 6, 1936 publication of the Brooklyn Times Union, and it appeared on page 2. And before I read it, I should just quickly mention that this is a man who passed out by breathing carbon monoxide gas. It's not exactly clear in the writing, it's just implied. Anyway, here we go. The headline is, Dying Man Saves Self from Auto Gas Death. Atlantic City, New Jersey, April 6. Charles Pankos, 27-year-old boarding house keeper, was saved from accidental death today when his car, pushed into reverse by his leg, backed him from a carbon monoxide-filled garage. Police believe Pankos had gone into his garage behind his home at 134 South Pennsylvania Avenue here to adjust a dashboard meter. Fumes from the running motor filled the closed garage, and then as Panko's body slid forward, his leg pushed the car into reverse. The automobile backed from the garage, forcing the doors open, and then stopped with the rear wheels just over the curbing in the street. Patrolman Samuel Cook saw the incident and investigated. Panko's was revived by a physician who worked for more than an hour with a pull motor, which isn't a term used much anymore. It's basically a primitive ventilator. So I'm including this next story because one of my listeners in Australia, that's Ian, uh, the two of us got in a little bit of an email uh, back and forth about the horse meat scandal from 2013 that affected parts of Europe. And I mentioned that somewhere in my collection I had a little story about this happening in Chicago. So here it is. And this story was published on July 7th, 1946 in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on the front page. And the headline reads... All the steak you can eat turns out to be horse meat. Chicagoans feel fine until they learn what they have been served. Chicago, July 6th, United Press. Hundreds of Chicago restaurant patrons got all the roast cutlets and steaks they could eat at five cafes this week. They felt fine until tonight when police informed them that they had been eating horse meat. Police said that five vendors had been arrested on suspicion of selling horse meat for consumption by diners who thought they were getting something else. Police were visiting more than 50 establishments on Chicago's north and west sides to inform proprietors that the, quote, beef, unquote, roast steaks, cutlets, and hamburger they had been dispensing recently may not have been beef. Ralph Zagarelli, who had 800 pounds of horse meat in his car, was arrested Friday. Now, 800 pounds is a little over 360 kilograms. He said the meat came from a dog food concern and was being resold to restaurants and hamburger stands. Other arrests followed. By tonight, police had collected 1,600 pounds of horse meat. That's about 725 kilograms. Police said some of the vendors had paid 15 cents a pound for the meat and sold it at an average of 50 cents a pound. 
dealers got up to 75 cents, police said. Now, 75 cents doesn't sound like much, but adjusted for inflation, that's about $11.75 per pound today. That's a lot of money for horse meat. Next up, we have a story from the November 11th, 1949 publication of the Battle Creek Inquirer, and this appeared on page one. The headline is, Returns to find $8,312 left in booth is gone. Now, $8,312 is over $107,000 today, so keep that in mind as I tell this story. Philadelphia Associated Press. How would you feel if you left $8,312 cash in a telephone booth and then couldn't find it later? That's what happened last night to Mrs. Virginia K. Spina. Afraid to leave the money unprotected in their apartment, Mrs. Spiner and her husband, Achilles, took it with them when they went to a corner drugstore to make a telephone call. Mrs. Spina made the call and then rejoined her husband, who had waited outside the store. A few blocks later, Mrs. Spiner remembered her handbag and the money. They rushed back to the phone booth. No handbag and no money. The druggist knew nothing of it. The Spiners hurried to the nearest police station to report their lost savings. As they were about to leave the police station, in walked a young woman, Nan Pinoan, who reported finding $8,312 in a drugstore phone booth. Miss Pinoan said she put the money in a hat box and took it to the Spina's address, which she found in the handbag. She turned it over to John Wycheck, who lives in a first-floor apartment. Wycheck, thinking it contained a hat, put the box in the hall outside the Spina's door. When Mr. and Mrs. Spiner arrived all out of breath, the box and $8,312 was still there. Boy, they were lucky. And lastly, we have a story that I've come across many times over the years, and I figured it's time I finally tell it. And I'm not going to read the entire article because it's actually a mishmash of several different stories. It's only the first part that I'm concerned with. This is from the September 14th, 1979 edition of Newsday. Uh, This appeared on page 6. New York. With their guns drawn, police swarmed into a bank yesterday and collared what they thought was another bank robber waiting for a teller to hand over the cash. Quote, This is the guy, said the teller. Wait a minute, the man said. I was only making a withdrawal. Sure you were, pal, said the cops who hauled him off to the station house to be booked. About an hour later, the suspect was released. He had convinced police that he really was making withdrawal legally. Police said that the man, whose identity was not disclosed, had an account at the Citibank branch at 200 Park Avenue. He had filled out a withdrawal slip and handed it to the teller, but he never looked at the back of the slip. On the back, some prankster had printed in block letters, quote, This is a stick-up, unquote. <laughs> and the prankster returned the slip to the rack where the customer later found and used it. The teller did look at the back, however, and activated an alarm. The customer was released when a check of the account number on the face of the orange and white slip showed that the man had an account at the bank after all. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. 
I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. So early in the podcast, I'd ask you if you knew the most used place name in the United States. Did you know? Well, here are the top five. Now, fourth and fifth places are a tie. It turns out there are 38 places named Centerville, and the same is true of Arlington. Coming in at number three, there are 39 places named Clinton. And at number two, there are 45 places named Franklin. And finally, at number one, with the most place names, it is Washington. There are 91 places with that name here in the United States. Interestingly, the United States Postal Service sees it a little bit differently. And that's, of course, because there isn't a post office in every single little town. According to the USPS, the most common city name is Franklin with 31, while the most common post office name is Clinton with 26 locations. Personally, I think we need more Stephen Towns on this planet, and yes, they should all be named after me. Now, before I sign off, I just wanted to quickly mention that maybe about 10 days ago, I got an email regarding one of the episodes that I recorded back in 2018. It was titled Christmas Time in Santaheim, and my wife, Mary Jane, to this day says it's one of the best episodes I've ever recorded. So if you've never heard that, I do encourage you to go back and listen to it. So back in July, I was contacted by someone from the Howard County Historical Society. That's where Santa Heim was located. And I was asked if I'd share my research material, which I gladly did. Then September rolls around, and they get another email asking if they can use my podcast as an audio component of the exhibit. And I didn't really know what that meant, so I said, sure. And I was told to be some signage and a QR code linking to my episode. So I'm thinking, you know, something about the size of a sheet of paper. Well, as I said, about 10 days ago, I got an email, and attached to it were photos of the exhibit. And in it are, you know, full-size banners explaining the history of Santa Heim, and they do have ornaments that were made there. But to my surprise, they also had a full-size banner for my podcast. So if you just happen to be anywhere near Ellicott City, Maryland, make sure you stop at the Howard County Welcome Center and check out the exhibit. It runs through January 21st of 2024, and they are open from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. daily, although they are closed on Mondays. The address is the Howard County Welcome Center. It's at 8267 Main Street in Ellicott City, Maryland. So make sure you check that out. The second thing I wanted to mention is that yesterday, Pamela McCall, who wrote the book Twas the Night that I am you know, giving away in a contest, she was giving a talk right up the street from me at the Emma Willard School. I am not exaggerating that on a nice day, I can easily walk there. But the interesting thing is that my wife and I have lived in this house for 15 years, and I've only been on the campus once. And that's because it's kind of like that mansion up on the hill. You know, you go by it every single day, but you don't have the nerve to go near it. And that's kind of how it's been with us. 
So when Pamela emailed me the other day and said she was going to be giving a talk there, I didn't for a second hesitate uh, to take her up on the offer. I wanted to see the inside of those buildings again. Now, the nice thing was that once we got there, I didn't expect this, two students gave us a tour of the entire campus. I was able to see far more than I saw the first time years ago. The place really is that amazing. But the reason I mention this is that after Pamela completed her talk, a copy of her book was being passed around the room. And my table was the last uh, table to get it. And it went to a ninth grade girl who was sitting nearby me. And she was the last person to get this book. And she's just kind of browsing through it. But then like five minutes later, I look over and she's still looking at it. I mean, she's going page by page through this book. It was clear that she just loved looking through this thing. So it's not just me. So again, if you'd like to enter the contest to win the copy that I'm giving away, just go to my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and you'll see that the top posting is for the entry form. Again, you can enter the contest. It runs up through uh, midnight on December 8th. And then over the weekend, I'm just going to use a random number generator to generate a number. And then let's suppose it's number 37. I'll go down to the 37th person on the list, and that will be the winner. Now, if you're curious how many people have entered so far... It's a little under 40, so maybe 37 would be all there is. But uh, I do want to say some people have written some really, really nice things about the podcast. You know, one of the things about reading the reviews on Spotify and Apple and so on is that people can be quite cruel. There are times I read these reviews, I'm like, just why am I doing this? So I just want to thank everyone who took the time to put a positive comment in there. It was just really, really nice to read those things. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a full-length story. And what I can tell you is that it's a very obscure Christmas story that has the working title of The Beardless Santa. So stay tuned for that. I do think you'll enjoy it. Just a reminder that the Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. So be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you'll find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts out there. As always, thanks for listening and take care, everyone. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.